of all the people who have ever exploited Christmas for their own personal benefit, this guy has got to be the worst offender. I mean, this guy. Historically and biblically, he isn't in the Bible. He's not there. And yet somehow, the Christmas donkey, he's everywhere. He's in nativity plays, on Christmas cards. He's even got his own song. Now, of course, it doesn't really matter that we have made up a Christmas friend. Um, but his popularity, it raises the interesting point. Thanks very much, Brian. Um, it raises the interesting point that our usual perception of the Christmas story is at least half a step removed from what is actually recorded in the Bible. It's as if each year we get the edited highlights and certain bits get added in and certain bits fall through the cracks. And as we look at Luke's original account, historical account, factual account this morning, we find out that the bits that often get missed out are not just kind of small, minor details, but actually there's quite a lot, and it's quite important. Because as we look at Luke's original factual account this morning, what we see is there are two Christmas babies, not one, two, and both of them have their birth announced by an angel, and um, also they're uh, um, miraculously conceived, not just one, both the Christmas babies. On the one hand, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, but also Zechariah and Elizabeth and John. Now, why does this matter? I guess it'll be a lifeline for um, primary school teachers who have to find a part for every child in the Christmas play. And that becomes more and more difficult. You have Mary and Joseph and the wise men and the innkeeper and the shepherds and the angels. But after that, where do you go? You're stuck. You've got to have like third narrator or um, somebody was once a stable wall which um, can't be very good for self-esteem. So if Luke is, is expanding the cast list, that has to be all to the good. But the real significance of this is we have to trust Luke as a writer, as an explainer of things. And the real significance for us here is the clarity with which Luke is showing us the arrival of Jesus and what it is and what it means. Remember, he was writing for the Roman world, for people who didn't necessarily know what had happened in Palestine with the Jews. All they knew was that something was stirring in the empire. The news, the message of Jesus and his followers was growing and spreading and growing and spreading. And what's it all about? And so Luke sets out to explain it. He puts pen to paper. He sits down to write and he starts with Zechariah and Elizabeth and John. And for us, and you think, well, this is a bit obscure. But this is where he starts. Why does he begin here? Because these events that we'll see, they show us very, very clearly three things. First, we see here that the Lord of Israel has visited. The Lord God of Israel has visited. G-O-D. It's one of those really slippery words that means completely um, varying things depending on who's using it. So you have a, an ancient Roman or a modern Muslim or an agnostic philosopher use the same word but with totally different ideas in their heads. What does Luke mean? What do Christians mean when we say that G-O-D came down at Christmas time? It's very specific. Have a look please at the start of Zechariah's song in chapter 2. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited. 
In the whole chapter, one of the striking things is how Jewish it all feels. This guy is called Zechariah. He is a Levite. He's a priest. He's from the family of Abijah, no less. His wife is also a descendant of Aaron. They live in the hill country of Judea. And Luke, he describes them in terms of Hebrew piety. He says that they were... um, They were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. It's probably a good thing that um, Roger Hargreaves, in his series of Mr. Men books, never got as far as making Mr. Old Testament and Little Miss Judaism. But if he had done, these people would be a good model. These people are pedigree Israelites. And even the setting of their own story is very reminiscent of Old Testament events. Here are faithful people who have been unable to have children, and in their older age, they receive a promise from God. It's just like Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah. These people are pedigree Israelites. And the point is, Christmas is their celebration That's what Luke is doing here, as he sets out to explain the new story of Jesus Christ. He begins by linking it into the old, old story of the Hebrew Scriptures. Because the God who visited at Christmas is that God. The God who, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. The God who made promises to Abraham. The God who brought his people out of Egypt. The God who spoke the law from Sinai. The God of the Levites and the sacrifices and the temple, that is who visited at Christmas. And this comes most clearly if you look back at the start of chapter 1 in what the angel says. Um, In the temple, when Zechariah is on duty, an angel appears to him. And he says, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah says, I don't really think so. And you have the best comeback in the whole Bible in verse 19 when the angel says to him, I'm Gabriel. I think that's the best comeback. He said, I have been sent to give you this news. It's not a, a, this is going to happen. But um, look at verse 16 and what the angel says about this John, this child who will be born. And remember this. This John, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children of the disobedient, um, sorry, to the wisdom of the just, making ready for the Lord a people prepared. Right, so that's what the angel says to him. And what we need to remember is that to Jewish ears, that has all been said before. Please could you flick back to page 802, 802. Because what the angel is describing here is a kind of set piece from the Old Testament, something that was promised where the Lord had said that one day he will come, but before he comes, there will be a forerunner, somebody to prepare the way and prepare the people for the Lord, someone like the prophet Elijah. And Isaiah speaks about it in the Christmas readings. You might get that this evening. But so does the prophet Malachi. Let me read from the beginning of Malachi chapter 3 and see if this sounds familiar. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. And anyone who's a fan of Handel's Messiah is now humming, and I apologize for that. But look on to the very last words in the book as well, the end of chapter 4. These, um, chronologically speaking, these are the final words before a 400-year silence. And God says to Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That is exactly what Gabriel said to Zechariah, isn't it? That John is the forerunner. He's the Elijah figure who will come and who will prepare the way for the Lord, the God of Israel, promised from of old. So Luke is super clear about what's going on here, but why does this matter to us? Well, most obviously, Luke would see this as answering the age-old question about where to find the truth about who God is, what he's like. Like nowadays, I guess in Roman times, it would have felt like there was a whole menu of religious options. There were the traditional ones of um, Rome and Greece, like Artemis and Jupiter, that kind of thing. There were other kind of local religions and gods in different places. There was maybe some Eastern influences beginning to come in. But Luke is saying, no, Judaism, ha, wouldn't you know it? Judaism, that's where the truth is found. Because Luke wasn't Jewish, he was Greek. He wasn't Jewish by descent himself. But he became convinced that in Jesus, the Lord, the God of Israel, had visited. For many people, maybe for you, that's a challenging idea. That God has acted in a way that shuts down the menu, saying, no, there is truth found in one place. But it's not just a challenge, it's it's good news, it's great news that God is not aloof, he's not playing hard to find, he's friendly, he came to visit so that we might know him. And if you're a Christian, think about the richness that this opens up, the expanded vision of God and of Jesus Christ. This is... um, if you've been a Christian a long time and you says, oh, there's another Christmas coming around, this is a wonderful thing to meditate upon. That when the Lord, in Genesis 1, when he makes the stars, or when he wrestles with Jacob, or when the Israelites can't approach Sinai because of his blazing holiness, that's the God who visited in Jesus. When you read the Old Testament and have this expanded view, that's who visited in Jesus. Or when Isaiah asked, who has held the oceans in his hands? Who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and looks down so that the people are like grasshoppers and the nations are like a drop in the bucket? That's who visited at Christmas. So no wonder the Roman Empire was shaken. No wonder history itself was shaken. This is who had come, the forerunner and then the Lord. That's the first point that Luke's making here, and it leads into the second. The Lord God of Israel has visited in order to redeem his people. Have a look, please, back at the song and see how he carries on there. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people 
and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. God has come, and this is what he's come for. He has come to show mercy, to redeem those who put their trust in him. Now, we kind of think, well, yeah, that's what Christmas is about, that God came down to redeem us. But when you think about the Old Testament background, that's really not a given. We can't take that for granted. Because it's not, when the Old Testament speaks about the day of the Lord when he would visit, that's not an easy or a peaceful thing for God to come. Think about those words of Malachi, that he will refine the sons of Levi like a fire and soap. Not an easy thing that when God visits us, perhaps most formally, uh, sorry, perhaps most um, forcefully, the prophet Amos had written, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. In all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord God. Think of it a bit like um, some parents who are coming home after their children have been throwing a, a wild Christmas party in their absence. They behave really badly, they've um, abused their parents' trash, they've absolutely trashed the place. They've hurt one another. And they know that by rights, when mum and dad visit, when they get back, there's going to be a a stink and a row. Wasn't that what we'd expect? When God comes down to this earth to visit and to see what we have done with it, with one another, we'd expect, as the Old Testament says, God to come in blazing glory and strict justice. But we look at Luke 1 and we see that that is not yet, not this time. Zechariah says that this time God has come in grace and humility. And the grace, the redemption that he speaks about really has three elements in the song that he sings. First, Jesus is the ruler that we need. That's what it means when it talks about in verse 69, the horn raised up in the royal house of David. The horn, the symbol of strength, the ruler, the king has come, someone who can lead us and restrain the waywardness that's in our heart and lead us, inspire us into better things. The king to set things right. And also, secondly, to save us from our enemies. I don't know about you. I don't, we're not really used to thinking of ourselves as having enemies in life. You know, there's people we don't, don't like or they don't like us, but enemies, it sounds a bit more like a Christmas film, doesn't it, where there's a hero and then the nemesis. But we do have enemies. The Bible's very clear. There is Satan. He is real. His effects are evident to lead us away from the Lord, to ruin like himself. And inside of us, sin, the cruel addictions of sin. And in the end, mortality, the enemy we can't escape. Unless... There is someone to save us. I think we've sang it the last um, few Sunday mornings. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. 
And the second verse of that says this, O come thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. That's what Jesus came to do. He's the king, he saves us from our enemies. Thirdly, so that we might serve him. That's the final part. He came to set us free from sin and death so that we might serve the Lord. It's Malachi again, if you're still humming, hum it again. He will purify the sons of Levi that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. That's what Malachi promised. And see how Zechariah picks that up. Verse 74, that we being saved from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him. All our days. That's the third part of this redemption, because on our own we're not fit to serve God. Think about a servant at the Queen's Christmas lunch who's got filthy clothes and grubby hands and bad breath. Well, I'm sorry to say that morally that's us, unacceptable in the presence of God, what we are and what we do. Plus, we don't really want to serve Him all the time, our hearts run in all different ways. That was the problem in Malachi's day, if you know the book. They were the people of God, but their hearts weren't in it. They were bored of serving him. But here is Jesus, who by his blood can cleanse us, and by his spirit he can change us so that we are fit and are willing to serve the Lord with our lives. The Lord God of Israel has visited in order to redeem his people, this is good news. It was a friendly visit against some of the prophetic expectations. This is an offer of peace and a second chance. And it's for everyone. Part of what Luke's doing here is expanding our view of who God's redemption is for, that it embraces all kinds of people. I mean, when you look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, he's a priest. These guys are pedigree Israelites. They're kind of the usual suspects for salvation. But very quickly in Luke's story, we see that it's not just for the likes of them. As Jesus welcomes the poor, the humble, the Gentiles, even people like Theophilus and all his Roman friends, and even people like us and all of our friends. That's why Luke was writing. That's why we speak, invite people to carol services, because the Lord God of Israel has visited in order to redeem. And he has done that at long last. That's the final part of the atmosphere as you look at this, this chapter together. At long last. Isn't there a real sense of expectations finally met here? We've been waiting for ages and finally God has come. It does fit rather nicely, doesn't it, with our experience of modern Christmas, if um, anyone has small children, um, well, kind of medium-sized children, the really small ones, don't, they're not aware of what's going on yet, but the medium-sized ones are, oh, how many sleeps, how many sleeps? And um, some of the students are probably feeling that way as well with the end of exams, how many sleeps till I can go home? Or if you have um, some holiday from work, you might be feeling that, or if you've ordered something from Amazon, and you're looking forward to it, and there's that sense of when's it coming, and you've checked on your emails when it's meant to come, but will it come? And then finally, it comes. Whew, I've been waiting. Well, that is very much the atmosphere 
but amplified a thousand times as we look at Zechariah. God had promised that he would one day come in judgment, in redemption, to put things right in this world. But there had been 400 years of silence since Malachi. And then John comes to prepare the way. And then Jesus, the Lord himself. And his song is full of that sense of gratitude and joy at the faithfulness of God. That at last he is fulfilling his promise, his oath, as he said, as he swore to our forefathers. And it's not just Zechariah. Over in, um, in the second chapter of Luke, there's a man called Simeon. And all his life, he had been waiting for the Lord to come. And finally, as he holds the baby Jesus in his arms, he says, at last, Lord, I can die in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. And then there's Anna, another one of the Christmas um, folks who often gets written out. Let's have a look at Anna. She's just over the page in verse 36 of chapter 2. This is when the baby Jesus is weeks old and he's being presented in the temple. And Luke writes, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, who was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer, night and day. And coming up at that very hour, i.e. when Jesus was there, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. It wasn't just Zechariah. All of God's faithful people had been waiting for his promises to be fulfilled. And Anna perhaps embodies that with her long, long widowhood. But here at last, the Lord has come. And she goes off and she She spreads the word to all those who were expecting. Finally, the Lord is here. In his song, towards the end of it, there's a metaphor that Zechariah uses that really sums this up. He says that Jesus' arrival is like the sunrise. Um, Some of you, if you ever worked a night shift or had to pull an all-nighter, you'll know that sense when it feels like the clock is moving very slowly. But you look out of the window... And you see it's beginning to get light. And you know that the sun is rising. The night is nearly finished. The day is almost here. Now, that's not a good metaphor for Scotland in December. um, But you get the point. At last, after a long, dark night, the time of waiting is over. The sun is peeping over the horizon. The new day is here. which is a fitting note for us to end on. It's fitting because we're about to try to celebrate Christmas, celebrate, and that's not always easy. Like Robin was praying, this is a time of year that often highlights the things that are harder in our lives, family grievances, money worries, all sorts of frustrations. But we need to try to think back to that initial joy of Simeon and Anna And Zechariah, these people who had waited for so long to see the Lord, and finally he's here. Try to feel some echo of their joy. 
There's a place later on in Luke's gospel when Jesus is speaking with his disciples and he says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We stand on the right side of so much waiting and hoping on the part of the people of God. We stand on the right side of the sunrise. We've seen that God came, what he did, how it all worked out. We live after the sunrise. And that's how we can celebrate. We look back and we see that the Lord has come. But also, this is fitting for us to note as we close, because we're still waiting. These people were waiting. We're still waiting. Luke, by the end of his gospel, or certainly in Acts, his second volume, he makes it clear that the promise of the Lord Jesus was that he will return. He came the first time, and he will return. And so our situation is not so dissimilar from Anna, Zechariah, Simeon. We've seen the sunrise. We've seen the first coming. But we are still waiting for the full redemption. He came in grace. He will come a final time to fully fix forever everything in life. But not yet. We're still waiting for that, aren't we? And so Advent is a great time for looking back, looking back to the first arrival of the Lord Jesus, but also forward to his second coming. Because we see from this that the people of God, when they wait, they do not wait in vain. He is a faithful God, and in his time, he will keep his promise And so we look back, we look forward, and one day we will say on quite a different scale, the Lord God of Israel has visited to redeem his people at long last. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news of Christmas, that you are a friendly God, that you came to visit, and that you came in grace. Lord, please help us as we wait for the return of Christ. Help us to trust in your faithfulness. And Lord, we ask that at Christmas time, we would have some sense of the privilege of the ages, that we have seen the Lord Jesus, that we have read and heard of him. Help us, Lord, to, even though it's not fully dawned, to enjoy the light of this new day that he came to bring. And Lord, we pray that you would help us in our lives, to wait patiently. We thank you for these examples of saints of old. We pray that we too would be found watching and waiting when you come. For your name's sake. Amen.